All right. Three, two, one. Cool. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Three, two, one. with all the sexual chemistry of, I'm assuming here, but Ed Brubaker and <laughs> this character he has written. <laughs> it's like, I actually have dyed hair and I love old movies. Oh, that character. I thought you were talking about Ethan Reckless. <laughs> uh, sure. I mean, who wouldn't? Who indeed wouldn't? Yes, she likes to spray paint things. She's a punk anarchist who loves Judy Garland. And the boys her own age are all wrong for her. (laughs) (laughs) She dates some real losers. She needs to find a nice guy. Um, Today, we are in... Well and truly in the home stretch. I said this virtually every episode. (laughs) (laughs) Barely clinging to life. uh, Of our Ed Brubaker miniseries, which means we are are into the pandemic years. (laughs) (laughs) We are. I consider this to be a pandemic book. It very much Uh, is. He talks about it very specifically as a pandemic book. I guess that does explain how it's like they've written like what six now there there's five out uh and i think there will be another one in the next like four or five months i believe although they do have a new project announced as well so maybe not but yeah like the format change to these like graphic novels um the like time to like research and develop and work on them and just like the opportunity to like pivot to a whole new thing are all things that he attributes to like being stuck at home in the pandemic and having the like comics industry grind to a complete standstill. So it was like, well, we have nothing to do for like several months. So I guess we should like do whatever we want. So Sean Phillips must have drawn like a thousand pages of art in the last like three years, right? Um, It's not that crazy, but... That seems, yeah, that seems correct-ish for sure. When did Criminal wrapped in 2019 or 2020? 2020. Cruel Summer is like 2019 into 2020. These books aren't like crazy long, though. It's true, but they are, you know, if you take the forthcoming one, that's like 750 pages. Wait, there's a forthcoming one that's 750? Oh, oh, you mean that makes it 750 (laughs) pages. (laughs) 750 pages now, plus probably another 150, and then, you know, 12 issues, like another 300 pages of Criminal, Mm -hmm. 70 pages of Pulp. This just reminded me of a thing that I once saw that made me want, like, a comic creator sports card, which is the Jack Kirby career statistics. Would you like to hear some career totals, averages, and game highs for Jack Kirby? (laughs) How many all-star periods? Do the career accomplishments box first. I want to know how many championships, 
<laughs> no career accomplishments. Had like the highest award in comics named after him. So there's that. He's a he's a bit of a Bill Russell type in that regard. <laughs> he really, but I feel like Jack Kirby is like. He has seven MVPs, but never won a championship. (laughs) I don't know if that's true. Did he never win a championship of comics? Uh, Maybe that is true. It's weird. It's weird to like make a proper sports analogy because it's like, well, who did he lose them to? The answer would be Stan Lee, but it's like, but they were on the same team. (laughs) Yeah, sure they were, dude. (laughs) Okay, career totals. 20,318 pages of art, 679 pages of layouts. 1,385 covers, 22 cover layouts, uh, career averages, 376 pages a year, 31 pages a month, one page a day, 26 covers a year, 2.2 covers a month. Most pages published in a single year, 1,158. Most pages published in a single month, 142. That's completely (laughs) demented. Like a full trade paperback in one month, September 1947. Because I feel like like i feel like you always hear about things that it's like it got held up over the art like it's yeah it's gonna take an extra six months to complete yeah. <laughs> he had a 20 year period where he published 13,133 pages and 1,013 covers averaging 670 pages a year 56 pages a month 1.8 pages a day and 52 covers per year it's a cover That's every week cr- baby um but what's also crazy to think about is like you know as people it's been well established we're not artists truly it would maybe drive me a little insane to be like yeah i'm really going off lately i've been averaging a page a day <laughs> yeah and i guess if you think of them as like artistic pieces unto themselves then that doesn't seem very crazy but like I feel like that would drive me crazy, especially when like a writer can just be like blast out yeah. so much at a time that it must be like, I guess it's just like a, a different brain. Yeah, it is. And I also think that like, I mean, number one, yeah, writers get like too much credit for the amount of work they have to do relative to the amount of work an artist has to do. I also do think that like, yes, it's true that a writer can sit down and like blast out like 10 pages in one sitting um, or more. But I also that like there's still like the research and like the plotting and like a lot of like pre-writing that happens, you know what I mean? Before they like sit down and blast everything out. Whereas like the artist does all that stuff like on the page, the writer, that stuff all happens like before they ever set pen to paper, so to speak. And like how much of it makes it onto the page kind of depends on, you know, what they end up writing. Sure. But today we are talking about the reckless series of trade paperbacks i guess you would say or just graphic, graphic novels. novels yep granos that the, so the first one comes out like late 2019 correct i believe it comes out 2020 I believe it comes out yeah, late 2020 or, yes sorry yes late 2020 sorry um because i remember it, it's like a jump scare <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, at the in like the back matter of the of the first one where it's like a note from ed brubaker it's like January 2021. But I guess these weren't republic. Like, it's not like this is a collection of comics that were published no. as single issues. Or it's the second one that says, like, January 2021. Yeah. Um, And that's crazy. <laughs> it's it's <laughs> very crazy. I guess there are some comics, like, it's you don't really know what month it is at a given time. 
when you're just reading like collections. Yeah. Whereas with these, it's like, oh, it is October 2020, <laughs> which feels incredibly month. recent. Yeah. And it's also like, I'm reading the first in a series of five graphic novels, and it's October 2020. <laughs> that is that is lightly demented. Here is what I will I will pick and choose some things to read from Brew Baker's afterwards. So he starts off talking about how um, his dad read a lot of pulp books as a kid, which he was always very like intrigued by. Um, he says, that's probably where the first seed of Ethan Reckless was planted, watching my dad lose himself in some thriller or mystery with a cool painted cover. And for years, I've wanted to do something along those lines in comics, our version of that kind of series of paperback hero, especially after seeing how Darwin Cook had adapted Richard Stark's Parker books into amazing graphic novels. I wished we could do something like that, a series of full-length pulp books, but it felt unfeasible. Um, we had been doing serialized work for close to 20 years. We put out 10 to 12 comics a year and then collected them. That was how we did it. But then the pandemic hit and the comics market was shut down for months and that changed everything. We'd been about to start something else, but stuck at home with the world falling apart. I found myself going back to some old favorite detectives and wanting to give that same kind of escape to our readers too. So that's kind of the like the origin story. Um, That's interesting because now I'm sort of thinking about it differently. Cause like, I will say like, I think these, and you know, we haven't read the last two, but it's like, these are fine. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this, this is my kind of thing of it as well, which is that like, I get why I like, I get the appeal of those books. Cause I also enjoy those books but whereas like the Parker books and the Parker adaptations represent the kind of like top shelf of that genre. And I would say like Jack Reacher is also, sorry, excuse me, not Jack Reacher, Jack Reacher. <laughs> Jacques Richard. <laughs> Jacques Richard uh, is also kind of in that like category as well as like, you know, the upper echelon of what that sort of genre has to offer and they get by on the strength of like an extremely compelling character and i don't find ethan reckless to be an extremely compelling character and so instead like i do think he has captured some of the appeal of those books in terms of like they're diverting they're exciting um like as far as they go but he also has like the disposability of them where it's like when i'm finished i'm like and I never need to read that again. Like I, I'll, I'll probably read like the next Ethan Reckless adventure, but I'm never going to be sitting there thinking like, man, you know what I should do? Reread all of the Reckless books. Whereas like rereading all of the Parker books is already something I've done like twice, and I only first read them like five years ago. Right. I guess like the thing about the way it like shifted the way I think about it is like the Darwin Cook, like the Parker books, are such like painstaking or like very like artfully done very you know put a lot of effort and time into making those great even though they are adaptations of like what you would think of as a disposable pulp book and then these are like you know you're not adapting anything so it's literally just like i'm it's i'm making a disposable pulp book which you know it doesn't elevate itself beyond that and I guess, like, it shouldn't have to necessarily, but it does leave it, like, especially by comparison, when you're like, I want to make my version of Darwin Cook's Parker. It's like, well, you did not do that. <laughs> you made, like, perfectly fine, enjoyable books to read, but you did not make something that will, like, really stand up, I don't think. Mm -hmm. It is, like, um, 
I mean, it is in some ways like a more faithful like tribute to the pulp mold in that they're right. like, we're going to put out three of these books in one year. And it's like, right. yeah, that that is like how those pulp books were born, where it was literally just like, you got this detective character. We love him. Can, when can you get me six manuscripts? And they would be like, um, how about three months? <laughs> and then just be like, right. like churning them out. Um and like working at that kind of speed and that kind of deadline, you know, I think, yeah, I do think that like ultimately disposable excitement is what you end up with. And I don't necessarily have a problem with that. But like I said, it's like it's exactly the kind of thing where it's like I probably will continue to read the Reckless books as they come out. I will, I will probably get them from the library. <laughs> like I don't see myself spending money on them because I don't see myself wanting to have them on the shelf to reread right and it is also just a thing where like you i mean there's (laughs) it's also like there's maybe a reason that people were publishing these under pseudonyms like (laughs) because they didn't necessarily like respect them enough themselves to like attach their name to them and want the recognition for having written them and i feel like if you are like two of the most important comics creators of the last 15 years, 20 years, whatever, that you, there is a certain expectation and a certain cachet that comes along with them. But I guess like you can't really, you can't release these under pseudonyms. No, especially like, yeah, like a graphic novel. Someone is going to look at this and be like, so someone is either like aping Sean Phillips (laughs) so hard that it's like, insane or sean phillips did this and then it's like uh could it be sean phillips has he done anything else this year no interesting the style is very bakery graphic (laughs) novel about like you know the criminal element yeah yeah i also think that the format decision like the decision to go to these like 144 page hardbacks is not the right decision in at least in terms of like what they're trying to do because like especially the first one which I'm kind of just like flipping through here it's like Ethan Reckless's origin story investigating this like lost love thing there's also like a CIA plot there's also a like like you know his his like so there's his backstory the case itself the complication of the case being like his old flame, the like CIA twist of it, the like reverse twist of it being like just a personal vendetta thing. And that's just like a lot to pack into 144 pages. Whereas I feel like if this was like 15 issues, the like final issue where he like goes to visit her brother and the reveal of like no like uh, I don't know like what you waded into but she just like wanted you to die like you know trying to like fruitlessly avenge her that's like a good I I like the ending of this book a lot um but to have it come after like three or four issues worth of material is just kind of like it feels almost like too rapid fire and like too anticlimax and the CIA like the whole CIA thing is like introduced and then dismissed so fast that it's like why did we even have this whereas a longer book gives you space to have it be like you know 
you have that like whoa moment when you realize like oh he's like accidentally like waded into cia business he's like in so far over his head whereas he like gets into it and then immediately gets out of it in the span of like three pages yeah it does the length does cause things to end up feeling a little slim but then it's like you know this like you said the first one's quite packed and then by comparison i feel like i found friend friend of the devil not friend for the devil (laughs) um I found that one to be a little like thin in terms of not having necessarily enough to support a full narrative where it is just kind of like I'm investigating this and it appears to be this thing. And then it's like, and it was that thing (laughs) and I investigated it. Um, And you know, there's other elements to it as well, but it does end up feeling a little like, Oh, I think we've talked about this before where it's like, the th- I was in, I was looking for a thing, and the thing was exactly what I suspected that it would be, and I found it. Yeah, I it's it also has like a bit of a fade out effect where I'm like the biggest draw of this to me is how he like situates it in like the Los Angeles of the 70s and 80s, right? But in the same way that we were like with the fade out, it's like it's good that he has kind of like uh like the book is in some ways bloated but it's good that it's bloated because it lets you kind of like feel the city and like the setting and things like that and like you do feel the city and the setting in this book a fair bit mostly just through the art um but when yeah i just like want more room for that because i it just feels like when he has to like explain the corridor over the course of like eight caption boxes on one page i'm like it's it's a lot of like tell don't show i guess basically is is what i'm going for whereas like again a longer book where he can actually like spend some time in the corridor and get the like feel for the place appeals a lot more to me than like having (laughs) yeah having a few caption boxes where it's like so basically like this was the situation and it was bad anyways yeah there it's a very text heavy book. I noticed that like pretty early on, like, you know, we talked about the killer be killed where there were like those long caption boxes where it would be like a full screen of text. But then I feel like the reason that they had those was sort of to counteract the, what this has, which is like, it's one, it's like a third of a page as a panel. And it has like four text boxes and it's just like, this is so much text. Like, <laughs> I didn't dislike reading these, but I did find them quite difficult to read at times just because, like, the amount of text. And maybe this is a function of what we were talking about, where it's like, it is easier for a writer to churn out a bunch of text than it is for an artist to churn out a bunch of art. Where it's like, he just wrote a ton of stuff. <laughs> and then Sean Falls is like, okay, I have to make this like 135 pages or whatever. Um, and you know, that caused there to be a lot of text condensed onto every page, like every, there's not, there's very rarely like a silent panel. Mm -hmm. It's just like anything that's sort of transitionary or expositional, there's going to be like three text boxes at a, in any given panel. Yeah. And, and I do think that like, like, I think in general, Brubaker overwrites things a bit and has caption when there doesn't need to be, which like 
you know, that's the I, that doesn't normally bother me like a ton. I think some people like really fetishize visual storytelling where it's like if there don't doesn't need to be words, then there shouldn't be. And I'm like, I don't necessarily always agree with that. But I'm looking at like the sequence in the first book where he like tails these two enforcers for the guy that he's looking for by like poking a hole in their tail light. Um, and it's a sequence where I'm like, there should not be text on this. Like it should literally just show him with the screwdriver punching the hole. And then like the scenes of them driving through the countryside with the really bright, like red light thing. Like it doesn't, you don't need to explain that. Like, you know, if you poke a hole in uh, the tail light, it's more visible. Like I deduced that from, (laughs) from like everything that's happening. Um, And so instead we get like, yeah we get him being like explaining how it works being like it's an old fbi trick and then his internal monologue being like so where are these guys going <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> it doesn't it does nothing for me in terms of the story or the character to be like uh, he doesn't know where they're going <laughs> right and there's also lots of like californians like I drove up the five and then I went to the mm-hmm. Pine Grove Boulevard and I went west. You, you got to go 15 blocks and you can't take the freeway because you'll be backed up for an hour. <laughs> um, there's it a lot is of that, which is the, like, like SNL Californians like <laughs> skit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Uh, which, you know, like. I'm interested to see like what this script looks like mm-hmm. because it almost now that I'm like looking at it in that lens, it almost feels like it's like I wrote a novella and then <laughs> I gave it to Sean Phillips and he like put illustration underneath it, which is funny because like it's not maybe the problem is that you're not like thinking about okay, how do I adapt the this like written work into something else? So mm-hmm. like you just take it like directly from like you take the written work and transpose it into a comic. Whereas if you're taking from a source material book, you might, you have to think a little bit about like, okay, like, can I take this out? Like, can I portray this visually? And also I guess having a writer and an artist separately versus having like a cartoonist, you think about the unity of the art and the dial or the text in general. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can't really think of Darwin Cook having many narration boxes. Uh, I guess sometimes, but you think less about like the distribution of those two things as like a holistic single piece, and mm-hmm. you think of them more as like they're accompanying each other. Yeah. There is one script page in the back of the first one that is like. A normal script page it's part of the process but it's like yeah it's like page two one full tier and now we meet the main villain of this book wilder he's in his mid to late 30s and looks tough like an ex-biker who's gone legit or something he's an ex-hippie bomber who's been living on the run for a decade robbing banks and smuggling drugs and he's gone from true believer to totally corrupt murderer in his years on the run he's wearing mirrored sunglasses and has sort of longish hair and a mustache that's very 1979 He's standing in a doorway to a back office room inside this building, holding a half-smoked cigarette, ready to hit it again. He's in a wide-collared shirt with the sleeves rolled up. He's got some rings on his fingers. In general, he looks like a mean and predatory man, showing no fear. Wilder. And if you've got a good enough story, like, etc., etc. So it is, like, scripted pretty normally. I assume it's the same with the caption boxes, where it would just be, like, narration, colon, you know, whatever he wants in one box. I guess I want to see the script where it's like not a page where like stuff necessarily be, needs to be described that heavily. Mm-hmm. 
like a page where it's like like yeah there are there are a lot of pages like that where he's like doing an investigation and it's like the panels are like he's driving to a place and then the text is just like pure like i didn't know what was going on Mm -hmm. this mean this or could it also mean this Mm -hmm. i was thinking about it a lot um and like that that's when it starts to feel like it gets like a little choked up by the amount of text and it's also like kind of like padding the page count a little bit because it's like well i need something to put underneath this huge (laughs) amounts like i just stumbled across this where it's like you know you don't i think necessarily draw as many pages of him like driving through the city, which I guess what we're you're, you were talking about is like that's what adds to the atmosphere a lot of the time. But it's also like you don't necessarily draw these pages. Yeah, if you don't need <laughs> them to accompany some text. Three three panels, all full tier, showing him driving through the city with one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine caption boxes, um, of him thinking about the CIA. <laughs> Yeah, that that is certainly true, and it it does like I, I don't want to like compare this to Parker too much because they are like different, but also he kind of invites it by specifically like invoking Parker. Um, but like when I compare that scene with him doing like the the tail light trick with the scene from the start of the hunter where like Parker comes back into town and like forges his identity That's and like builds the up thing his. You always think about yeah, it's like. There's no caption. There's no there's basically no text for like 12 pages at the start of that book, which, again, I'm not like you should never have pages like text for 12 pages at a time. Um, But I'm just like the appeal of those things is like, let's see like a smart, tough guy do something like smart and tough and illegal and like pull it off because of his confidence and know how and like street smarts. And you don't like the effect is kind of ruined by having him be like, so this is why I'm doing this. And this is like how I learned how to do it. And, uh, you know, like explaining the whole process, like you kind of want to have that moment of like, what's he doing? And then when you realize what he's doing, being like, Oh, that's really smart. Right. Yeah. And, and it's less like, I guess also I'm just looking now at a lawless issue because I think that is like the, one of the more direct like comparison points, even though the characters are quite different. Mm-hmm. And I guess it is quite similar in that it has a lot of text boxes. Um, I The main difference that I noticed right away is like Reckless's first person narration mm-hmm. versus like an omniscient narrator. And I guess that does maybe play a factor where a third person narrator feels like it's like filling in the gaps. Whereas if you have that much first-person narration, it can feel a little bit like stream of consciousness in a way. Um, so maybe that's like the primary difference. But I'm looking at these criminal issues and it's like, yeah, there is... A, maybe it's partially the layout of the books that it has often like so much caption at once. Yeah, like having a lot of caption is not a new thing for him by any stretch of the imagination. No. And it is kind of like, I think, a holdover from doing like a lot of the early part of his career in superhero comics and um and like Batman earlier in his career especially who is like sure. the king of the caption box um 
But I do, yeah, I just think even things like there's the scene where he like goes to the garage to like threaten this guy who who has some information that he has. And there's like a good exchange where he basically is like, do what I want you to do or like, tell me what I want to know or I'm going to like break your hand. And the guy is like, OK, OK, like I'll give you what I want. Like, relax. I'm a pacifist. And he's like, great. So am I. And then he has like several boxes of narration where it's like, I'm not actually a pacifist, but like, <laughs> it's like, why are you going to, that's a great line. That's a great moment. The panel where he has this evil grin and he's holding up the wrench and says, great, then so am I, tells us everything we need to know. Yeah. So why would you then be like, but I would have broken his hand if I had to? Like, yeah, obviously <laughs> that's, that was never like in question. So yeah, I, I just... I don't know. Maybe like like I have a hard time pinpointing like what it is exactly that bothers me about like some of those things. But to me, it does feel like, you know, he just he just with this one has like kind of gone like, I guess, a little too far into some of his habits, which I would generally classify as like bad habits where the best case scenario is they're like distinctive of his style. And the worst case scenario is they're kind of distracting and I would say in most of the Reckless books, I find them more distracting than indicative of his kind of like writing style. They do feel like they are things that like didn't necessarily go through like a bunch of drafts. Like they feel like they're things that are being like churned out. And it's weird because I feel like when you're writing things quickly that they can almost become overwritten mm -hmm. because like you're just like you're, you're like in the groove. So you're just like. And then this, and then this, and then this, and then this. And so, like, you end up spending, I guess, a lot more time on a certain thing. Mm -hmm. And then, like, the editing process is what makes it more concise. Whereas with these, I feel like it's like, it, <laughs> I mean, I'm sure he didn't, but it, it is almost like he's typing, like, directly into an email box. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, it's just like, and send. <laughs> so, here's what I do know about their process, which is basically like, Again, as far as like a collaborative team, like Phillips doesn't give a ton of input in terms of like the writing or the characterization in the ways that other teams we've talked about, the artist is sometimes more involved with that stuff. But the way that their collaboration works is basically like they talk about it. Brubaker gives him like the high level stuff. He's like, great, sounds good. Brubaker writes like five pages and then sends them to him. And he starts working on those and Brubaker then basically just writes until he gets the like sample pages, not the sample page, like, but like the first, the first art back from Phillips, which like at this point in their relationship, I'm sure he rarely is like, change this, change this. Like, it's like, here's the pages. And then he just sends him everything that he's written since like the last time he got art from him. Right. Which to me is like, so unless you're, you're doing like, editing every single page then like there's really not like that doesn't seem to me like it does lend itself very well to like editing or proofreading because if you change something you're now having to right. like you're asking him to change art that might have been finished for like weeks because right. you like looked back and were like this actually like doesn't really work so yeah especially from like a str like if it's like a more high level there's like a problem with this like, I wouldn't have done, like, exactly. this chapter. Or, like, I need to, like, move, like, this This thing happens here. I think it should actually happen here, but everything else in this, like, section is the same. So it's like, well, 
I'm going to have to redraw those pages, basically, if you make that kind of decision, because like, I can't just like erase those panels <laughs> and then right. and then redo it. It's like part of the whole flow of the page and like that collection of pages, um, which like all that to say, just like, I think you're right that like, I as I have said many times in my Finally. academic career, first draft, best draft, uh, which I think <laughs> is similar to a philosophy that that Brubaker adopts. And again, as we have talked about with like several creators, like you get to a point in your career where it's like, why would I listen? Like my name on the book is what sells it. Why would I listen to story notes from an editor who in all likelihood has never written anything? (laughs) Um, And I also just signed a giant contract that basically says like, I know best. (laughs) And so, you know, you end up, I'm sure in a situation where it's like, I do know best. And most of the time you do, but I feel like in this specific, like this oeuvre, but then like, that's so strange because it's it's quite similar in many ways to other stuff that he's done. And I think it is ultimately, and we can talk, you know, sort of shift to talking about this is like, I think it's the inherent, I, I don't think, Ethan Reckless is that interesting? Is no, I guess I, like, the I main agree. point of it. <laughs> I yeah, we'll we'll talk about the books, and then I want to talk about him as a character and in sort of this like yeah the the sort of like American Ronin <laughs> genre basically. But I do think that uh, just to like wrap up our our editing conversation basically that there is an all like an element of the eighty percent kind of like rule as well basically where it's like you reach a point where the return on investment for like the amount of work you put in to like fine tuning in terms of how much it actually improves the product might just like not be worth the time. And like, it wouldn't surprise me if he's basically like, sure. I could like go back over this and like rewrite some of the captions or take out some of the captions. But if that's going to take me like three hours, how much better is the book? Because I took out like, you know, a few caption boxes or condensed some of it. And it's also, I'm sure, like, part of it is, like, this is in some ways antithetical to, like, the spirit of the project. Yeah. (laughs) That it's, like, we are trying to churn these out. We are trying to make, like, one every, like, few months, basically. And so, like, in order to maintain that schedule, like, I do just have to keep churning it out. And, like, you know, maybe there's part of him that's, like, I don't want to get too mired in the editing process because, like, these are supposed to be like quick and dirty. Mm-hmm. Uh, but let's talk about the book. So I guess we should start earlier on, but I guess it's in the episode title. We're covering <laughs> the first three uh, reckless trades, which are reckless, <laughs> reckless friend of the devil, which is a Grateful Dead song. Um, I just follow you down is the one that stuck out to me because um, that's a Gin Blossoms song. Although I guess. Mm. Is that one in the 90s? Because I feel like Jid Blossoms is 90s. But Could be. At any rate. And then... <laughs> Not one of the Reckless books we're talking song. about. <laughs> Which, that's why it stuck out to me. Sure. And then I was like, are these are other ones of these songs? Well, Destroy All um, Monsters is like the the movie. Yes. Which it's we also see the band. poster featured prominently several times. Right. We see it in the... <laughs> the El Ricardo. <laughs> the El Ricardo is a funny name. Um, so the basic outline is Ethan Reckless is this guy. End of sentence. Um, <laughs> he, there's the there's a way that they describe it on the back cover that's kind of funny, where it's like, he's 
one part this, one part that, and it's like he's mostly just like this. Um, but okay, here it is: one part Repo Man, one part Private Eye, and one part Wrecking Ball. And it's like you're mostly just a Private Eye. Yeah, I feel you've, like that oversells him. <laughs> you've written characters that are more Wrecking Balls, certainly, definitely. Um, and that's like I guess like we hear from like a textual standpoint that he is like a repo man or like he, I guess that's also another part that I'm missing that I would like to see more of. So basically Ethan reckless is this guy who like his thing is like, he is the handyman of like the private eye investigation slash professional punching Mm -hmm. like industry (laughs) where he was, he's like, I will do like literally anything. Yeah. Like dirty jobs done dirt cheapish. Yeah, uh, dirty teeth, not dirty jobs. You micro mf. Uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, that like he will he will do anything. Like he has like a phone line. Uh, <laughs> I thought you were calling me a micro mf, not a micro mf. <laughs> and I was about to make like a micro micro joke, and then I was like, oh no, micro is what was originally said. <laughs> Sorry, proceed. <laughs> Dirty jobs done dirt dog. <laughs> uh, they were writing that song. They were like, can we change jobs? I just it doesn't really like fit. There's not a lot of flow to it. Um but yes, Dirty Deeds Done Dirt Cheap is a good way to put it. Although it does seem like he gets paid thousands of dollars for every job. It, it does seem like that, yes. Um so and then we we do see the the dirty diaper case is like the one that sort of stands out as like it's funny that he does this look like kind of tiny job. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so he'll basically do anything. His backstory is he is an amnesiac uh, FBI agent. So he was like he kind of like fell into the FBI through family connections, and then he was embedded in this like basically domestic terrorist kind of cell. Um, And then there was like this bomb that went off that caused him to both lose a bunch of his memory and also lose his emotions, allegedly. And then it's like, that is something that doesn't really get revisited. We mostly just hear about that one time. Um, And so like, he is like very troubled by his past, but then he can't remember his past. So it's like, he like has trouble sleeping at night. He does a lot of drugs, which we also don't really hear about. Um, and then just like basically does these jobs where whatever comes up, he will do them. Mm-hmm. Um, the better the story, lives, the better. The and he job. lives in a movie theater. And he lives in a movie theater. Uh, and he loves movies. And he has a kooky assistant with dyed hair. Well, let's be clear. He he loves like black and white movies. Yeah. What's the point? I, I, I don't like I was gonna say he's the kind of guy who insists on having a film reel, but then I was like, well, it's the seventies slash eighties, so like that's the only option. But like if you took the say, like the character the same age and transported him to the twenty twenties, he would still he would still live in the El Ricardo exactly as it's depicted, and he would still show the exact same movies. Yeah. <laughs> Put it that yeah. way. He he likes old movies relative to the time. Yeah. Um, he's not like watching new releases. <laughs> he has not seen, seen Avatar: Colas Game of Water. <laughs> no, <laughs> which I mean, new by releases the way, 
Gonna have to eat my humble pie on that one. Good movie. Because I have not seen it yet. Very excited. Certified banger. Uh, I stand by the original Avatar is mediocre to bad. Avatar colon The Way of Water. It's a bop. I'm sorry to say. Bring your towel. I'm not sorry to hear it. Bring your towel. (laughs) It's a wet, wet movie. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. The name suggests. Right. Um, I hear there's... Well, I won't say anymore because I haven't seen it. I'm Saint sure other people fans. haven't seen it, but <laughs> sure, you give me a bad haircut. <laughs> Maybe you better Hard watch yourself. Worse. Uh, <laughs> there is there's one scene that almost loses me, and I'll let you guess after you've seen it what that scene is. Okay, I thought you were talking about the book. <laughs> no, <laughs> but do let's return to the book. Yeah, so the first book is, like, this person from his past who is part of this, like, terrorist cell. Like, you know, their classic 70s, like, underground hippie counterculture. They're like, eco-terrorists, question Kind mark? of, yeah. Or, like, that's... anti-war. Yeah, I feel, like, I feel like there's point. an obvious, like, person or group to point to to be like, they were like this. Well, they are... They are the Weather Underground, right? Uh, oh, sure. I don't know. I think they are. I, I feel saw like some reference to that what's, somewhere. What's the Unabomber's thing? He was kind of a solo operator. He, well, yeah, but like, what was what was he bombing about? He he was like uh, technology. I think was his main thing. Um, there is a very much like a, a movement in like recent times that's like the Unabomber was just right. Um, <laughs> The Unabomber Manifesto contends that the Industrial Revolution began a harmful process of natural destruction brought about by technology while forcing humans to adapt to machinery, creating a socio-political order that that suppresses human freedom and potential. Hmm. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> it is a real, like, I'm intrigued and would like to subscribe to your newsletter. <laughs> this is a substack that I'd like to subscribe to. <laughs> And then you open the substack, and it's like, you have a virus! <laughs> open the substack, and it's like, help! Donate $2 today! <laughs> I rely on your donations, and he <laughs> is alive. He is? Just saying. Yeah, he is. Might have to write him a letter. <laughs> <laughs> Just be careful about the package you get back. <laughs> okay. Reckless. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yes. That it one's is like my bad. What... <laughs> it is. I mean, you know, there's only so much we can really talk about. Um, so it is the Weather Underground, which is like basically like a militant far left group of like, you know, domestic terrorists. Some would call them heroes. I'm not one to judge um (laughs) but yeah and that sort of maybe we can talk a little bit in a second about that sort of idea of the book which is that like this guy is like a 60s like a very 60s-ish hero he's very Stephen Queen Mm -hmm. who has sort of like lived on into the 70s and the 80s and is like disillusioned a little broken down a little like past his sell-by date yeah, and I mean, he the loves theme, to surf. He does love to surf. There, like the theme or a theme of a lot of the books that we have covered so far, at least, is like 
sort of like the curdling of the summer of love and like the 60s, like the post 60s era and how like, you know, that age of innocence became this like dark, scary thing in the right, same way exactly. that he has become sort of like a a like troubled like anti-hero version of the person that he was when he was in the FBI. Yeah, he was used to be a cool FBI agent. Um but yeah, and so this person Rainey who is a former lover and was also like in this group but mostly it was her brother who was like the primary figure. She is in some trouble. She I think I believe she's robbed a bank and she like has the money but and is basically trying to flee the country, is the long and the short of it. Um, but tells him that she is being hunted by this guy Wilder, or has taken the money, or no, something to he, that effect. She, he, she tells him that Wilder has, like, she was told the money from the robbery was lost, but the, she thinks that Wilder has stolen it and is using it to, like, live large, you know, out in the, out in the sticks. On his own personal party barge. Mm-hmm. Um... Yes, that's right. So basically, he goes around investigating that. Eventually, he finds Wilder, um, who is like running this drug smuggling operation. Um, so he like goes crazy on that. <laughs> he like kills everyone. He kills Wilder. But then the last thing he finds out after he kills Wilder is that Wilder was a CIA, not an informant, but was working with the CIA to like handle this like mm-hmm. South American drug smuggling yeah, operation. Like, he he wasn't actually running a drug smuggling ring. He was like a middle manager in a CIA drug smuggling ring. Right. He was like American made. Yeah. Right? Sure. Uh the movie. Seen that? Miles Teller? Tom Cruise? Tom, Tom Cruise? <laughs> Maybe both? Are you are you thinking of war dogs? Maybe. War Dogs is Miles Teller and Jonah Hill sell arms, and they're right. like middlemen. It's the same kind of like flavor, like cocaine fueled debauchery that like oh, devolves Donald into... Gleason is who's in it that I was thinking of. Oh sure, he's the FBI agent, maybe whatever CIA agent. Consider him a uh, bit of a rate, Miles Teller type. That's interesting. I guess I- you're right. Irish Teller. Something, sure. something like that what does proceed that mean? <laughs> I, I, I was trying to make it kind of sound like miles and also sound like irish setter um if you swap them and well i guess gleason is very kind of irish sounding i was like if miles teller's name was donald gleason that would kind of make sense and if i think if Don, donald gleason's name was miles teller that would make sense yep <laughs> uh at any rate and then we eventually find out that so he goes to see the brother who we are told has died, but he actually didn't die. And then we find out that this was all a setup uh, that Rainy, this woman that he had previously been with, who was in this underground group, had basically set him up. She was dying of cancer and then she wanted revenge on Wilder um, and also on... Yes. And reckless. And so, so she wanted like she wanted revenge on Wilder because she was like a spurned lover, basically, or they had like a tumultuous romantic history. And then he thought like Ethan Reckless thought that she didn't know that he was an FBI agent. Um, but the brother, because of his amnesia, the brother tells him that like, no, you told her like the day the bomb went off, which is why like we blew up the bomb. 
um, to like, or that they were they were trying to dismantle the bomb. Yeah, and then that's what caused it to blow up. Yeah. Yes, so that is why she wanted revenge on him, and he like it never occurred to him because he didn't realize that she knew that he was an FBI agent. Right. So basically, she has concocted this scheme where they kill each other. Uh, we also forgot to mention that she herself is like killed in a car bombing. Um, but we find out that oh, actually, she has rigged this for herself, or rather, the brother has rigged this for her. So she can kill herself and sort of make it appear as though she had no part in this and also sort of escape, I guess, any culpability. Um, But she was going to die anyway, so she's fine dying. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, you know, Ethan surfs alone. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And it's like, I feel like it's, I think it's trying to do a bit of a like, you know, like you said, like an anticlimax, but I think it ends up feeling a little bit like, oh, okay. (laughs) <laughs> I think the I think the friend of the devil maybe does a better job of the like bittersweet mm-hmm. somewhat anticlimactic ending. Well, I'd say I'd say that like they both they they those books both get climaxes insofar as like Ethan Reckless kills the bad guy. They just have they have like these um ironic like twist the knife denouements where you know, he right. he realizes that like he wasn't really fighting for what he thought he was, or like he got the job done, but at what cost, or you know, things of that nature. It's not a satisfying victory, right? Right. Um. Then should I guess we just quickly run through the other two books? <laughs> Hopefully they won't sure. take that long. <laughs> um, I, I like Friend of the Devil, I think, better than the first one. Although I think part of that is because I'm also currently reading The Sympathizer, which is a spy novel about uh Vietnamese refugee in LA in the 70s so it was like wow. very there's like a lot of overlap and i was kind of like keyed up to receive this one very well but um yeah so we have Ethan Reckless who meets this librarian uh Lin Tran not Lin Tang shout out to my friend Lin Tang um i know someone named Lin Tang and in my head that. i was like which right. which name am I thinking to you. of? Oh boy, okay. <laughs> Anyways, Lin Tran, he meets, he falls in love. Uh, they're hanging out watching movies when she sees her sister in the background of a shot. In fact, her stepsister, but he loves her like a biological sister. She ran away to Hollywood to become a star, uh, but went missing after uh, a few months. So he starts looking into it to see where she went uh she he traces down some of her like you know contacts figures out how she was cast in this film as an extra and learns that she was involved with this um cult leader basically who was also a producer uh on a film and was like part of this cult hanging out at this like party house a lot um but his poking around prompts people to start coming after him as well and the people that he's spoken to. Uh, so he is eventually kidnapped by the former leader of that cult who has rebranded as a skinhead. Um, and that guy shows him a snuff movie that they made with Lynn's sister in it as like a willing participant um, because she was like swept away by the cult basically 
he makes the curious decision to show this movie to Lynn <laughs> after, of course, killing that guy and his cronies. Um, and she goes, she leaves him to go back to uh, live with her family again and recover from being shown a snuff film of her sister. Uh, and, and he... <laughs> he... You're forgetting the also funny twist where it turns out the guy actually is a real Nazi. Oh, oh yeah. Also, the yeah, the skinhead guy is a real Nazi. Um, and so he gets like $50,000. Oh, yeah, he gets, he gets a big payout from like Mossad or something for having like killed a Nazi. Um, anyways, and then he like goes out a, a single page that could have been its own book he like goes out and hunts down the other copies of the snuff movie yes. to destroy them uh more of that please and then uh you know he settles in and he watches some movies yeah um this one yeah specifically because of that and because of a couple of other scenes i was sort of like thinking about this as a tv show and sort of like how you would break down those beats and like the the book or the series that's just there are these like satanic movies and I'm going to hunt them down is like a really good idea. And I think it's just the visual of it's like him, him in the parka walking away from a crashed car with like a film container that I'm like, that's all you're going to give me. (laughs) How could you do this to me? (laughs) Could you tantalize me with this image? It's a great visual. And also like, because it's in California, we don't really get to see like, Ethan Reckless mm-hmm. in the snow very much, um, or at all. And so that's a that's a funny little extra thing that gets thrown in there. Uh yeah, I mean this one I do really like it. It does make it makes some strange decisions. Um, it does make some strange decisions. Again, like probably a few too many twists for a book this short is basically yeah, how Yeah, and like I like think does he need to also like... be a real Nazi? <laughs> I guess, I mean, that makes sense because it's, like, that explains how he gets paid for this job, which was, like, so personal and, like, covers his medical bills and stuff. So I guess that is kind of funny. But then it's, like, I guess, does he need to be a skinhead? Yeah. Um, And also, like, I guess it gets, like, a little thematically confused. Like, it seems to be that the book is sort of about, like, satanic panic and, like, Mm -hmm. cult movies, quote-unquote. Um. But then, like, the reveal or, like, the not reveal is just, like, yeah, there was a satanic cult who, like, sacrificed humans and, <laughs> like, did all these things in Hollywood. Yeah. It was, it felt to me also, like, a bit of a fatal retread where I was, like, we've kind of done yeah, this basically satanic quite cult. a bit. Yeah. But, like, down to, like, the red-hooded robes where I'm, like... I don't I like I feel like if you're gonna be that kind of like fatal adjacent there should be like a Josephine cameo or something at some point <laughs> um so it did like yeah it did feel like a bit of a retread of material that we have seen him cover before um but I did like it I don't know yeah that image of him again in the like in the snow I feel like at every opportunity the narration kind of like cuts down what we should expect from him and is sort of like he's not he like he basically like he's not as badass as he seems like which which is like sort of a bit of a thing that like Brubaker does sometimes and I think a lot of sort of like grounded realistic sort of like takes on the action hero do where it's like he's not like 
it's not that he's so much like stronger or faster or skilled than other people. He's just kind of like resilient and lucky. Um, which I like. Yeah, I really liked. I really liked that one little like. It's just a little like sequence where he sort of talks about the idea of being in a fight, and it's just like I am just like the person who has like done this enough times that I'm not like scared to do it. <laughs> And that's, like, sort of what gives me the advantage is, like, I will move immediately after I've, like, decided to take on a fight and will, like, keep going until it's done. And, like, I'm okay with, like, getting my arm cut if it means that I get to, like, kill the other person as as the, like, that's the trade. Right. And I think that's an interesting element of the character. Like, there are a lot of interesting elements that kind of, like, get thrown out, but because I think of the nature both because it's not serialized and because they're relatively short, I think a lot of stuff like gets thrown out and it's like, oh, that's interesting. And then we don't really hear about it. Like, you know, we never really get the the finish to that. Yeah. Like the whole idea of like Lynn Train as a character, I think is really interesting where it's like this like person who has come to the US as like a Vietnamese refugee and is sort of like, living in the shadow of the Vietnam War in a lot of ways, I think is interesting. Um, And, like, you know, we see little sequences of that where it's like, why are we hearing about this? Um, But it's interesting. And then I feel like we never really get... I guess we get some level of fulfillment on that at the end, but, like, we never really get that explored in the way that it might make sense to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah, I just, I find, like, the undercut, like, or, like, the undermined badass thing worked better for me in Killer Be Killed, where it was, like, Dylan is not an action hero, and, like, kind of the whole point of the book is, like, this guy's not a hero. And I guess it's also the point of this book to some extent that it's, like, this guy's not a hero. But I do think that it hurt, like, it's one of the reasons that I just don't find him that, like, interesting, I guess, as a character is that, like the Parkers and the Jack Reachers of the world and the Jack Ryans for that matter, <laughs> all, all the Jacks. Um, like, I feel like the kind of character who carries these kinds of books, one of the things that's like, what part of the fantasy of it is like, this guy is super competent, super skilled. He just is like better. He's the best there is at what he does and what he does. Isn't very nice. Like that is, <laughs> that's the appeal of this kind of character. And so to have him, sort of constantly be like I'm not the best there is at what I do and what I do sometimes is kind of nice (laughs) is it like makes him kind of bland to me in some ways and then also puts it at odds when it's like but you were like I don't know like the the like hunt for the films not that it's like an inherently super kind of like I guess like skill requiring job per se I guess it's that he says like I like disappeared their owners or like I like staged their deaths or what have you, where I'm like, yeah, I, I would rather read the book that's about the ex CIA or the ex FBI agent. Who's like taking all the dirty tricks the government taught him and is using them to like make justice his own way. I know that's like such a well-worn narrative basically, but it's like, that's a well-worn narrative because it's like exciting and <laughs> fun to read about and like it's a fun fantasy and just yeah. like i don't he lacks that kind of like cool factor for me most of the time but not in a way that makes him more interesting to read about in the way that it does with dylan 
Yeah, I think it does try to cut both ways a lot of times. Like, we do hear about how, like, he's not that cool, but then it's like, he is, like, and, you know, I think, I, I think personally that stuff for me strikes the right balance where it's like, he is a very competent guy with, like, FBI training. And even though, like, I think it has, like, the sort of noir element of the, like, detective that like goes somewhere and like gets beat up all the time like he doesn't win every fight or like he does he does kind of win every fight but like he doesn't escape unscathed in every situation Mm -hmm. like he gets hurt a lot and i think that is like a nice sort of element to add to it and i think that's maybe like where the grounding can come from but then also i think the main thing that bothers me about the character is that like he's too nice especially when we just come from killer be killed which has like a very complex character in the sense of like their goodness, obviously. Um, and you know, like basically every character that we've seen recently, like I guess Fatalic is a sort of different situation, but Velvet is like the character who is going against her own quote unquote good guys. Um, and then like Criminal obviously has a ton of those characters where it's like they have this sort of nebulous morality, but then with reckless it's kind of like oh like this is a good guy like i feel like there he was just really wanting you to feel like this was a good guy partly because i think like it's a self-insert in some ways uh which he sort of talks about directly in the afterword of uh friend of the devil he says says i think that's one of the reasons i decided to make ethan 15 years older than me so he can move in the world of my memories, but in a heightened and more action-packed way. So he is basically, like, saying directly there, like, <laughs> I wanted to make a character that was, like, not, it's not him, but it is, like, a guy who is operating within, like, his life, and or, like, you know, the greater world of his life, but in, like, an epic badass way. Mm-hmm. And so I think that there is, like, it's hard to resist, like, making him a little, I'm so nice, I have, like, this best friend who's, like, a hot college girl, <laughs> I give her lots of money, <laughs> like, <laughs> like I pay really well for my jobs, like, I take jobs for no pay because I'm such a nice guy. Yeah. I do all these things that, like, I don't have to do, like, there's not a lot of, like, grit to him which it feels like there maybe should be. Mm-hmm. He's maybe like a little too zen. Yeah, I think that is a good way to put it, is that like the danger is kind of absent from him. And I think that it would add a lot of like dimension to his character if there was a certain amount of danger about him, even with like the people who he didn't bear any sort of like serious ill will towards or like, like, I think not to, like, get into Destroy All Monsters, but I do, like, I think that that lends a new sort of, like, nature to the conflict in that one between him and Anna if it's, like, it's not just, like, oh, he disapproves of my boyfriend. If it's a perception of, like, you're, like, threatening my boyfriend and, like, that's, you can't, you, you can't solve all your problems by, like, implying that you're going to hurt people. Um but instead, it's basically like overtly, my dad doesn't like my new boyfriend. Yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, it is it is kind of like that. And yeah, I, I, I do think that like it's easier to understand a sort of like why he lives the way he does, why he's so alone, why he has difficulty maintaining friendships if he has a bit more of that like 
you know, this the violent lifestyle that I lead makes it difficult for me to control my anger or like know what a proportionate response sometimes looks like or um you know just like i i can be like a dangerous element in situations even when i don't want to be so to have him kind of just go from like very chill surfer guy except when i need to like murder some skinheads <laughs> it's yeah. it is a bit of like a shift there that makes it yeah I, it, it i don't know it doesn't it doesn't do a lot for me because he either needs to be like kind of all Zen all the time or like have a little bit more danger in his downtime, basically. Yeah. And I think that's kind of what I mean about sort of the way that ideas are picked up and discarded is like, we have this idea of like, this guy doesn't feel emotion. <laughs> like we, we basically get told that like pretty explicitly, like other than anger. Uh, and I guess like, that that can you sort of can point to that as why he has this like relationship with other people but then it's like that's not really true like he kind of has a soft heart Mm -hmm. like he and then like at the beginning of destroy all monsters we see that like oh he found anna like breaking into his movie theater and then he's like you're a good kid like i'm gonna give you a job and at the end of this, I'm going to, like, give you this movie theater where I, like, li- like I'm going to give you a building <laughs> that I own and live in. And it's like, this is the guy, like, who's the, like, badass bounty hunter who will, like, do it. He will do dirty deeds dirt cheap. Like, his level of niceness is always, like, directly proportional to, like, our perceived moral, like, fiber of a given character. And it's like, oh... He doesn't, like, it's like, he's nice to Anna, who we love, who is nice. Mm -hmm. He's mean to the boyfriend, who we don't like, and, like, as we find out, is a bad guy. And then he is violent to skinheads. Like, it's it's a very direct one-to-one spectrum. And so that gives the character, like, that's, I I think, why it feels a little self-inserted. Because it's like, I will behave nicely around nice people, and then I will behave badly around bad people right like he never and like like my i'm always in the right yeah he like he never makes a decision or behaves in a way that makes us as the reader feel dislike for him or like fail to identify with him where like he's he's basically like always trying to do the right thing at all times and like he makes mistakes in terms of like he makes errors of judgment or like bad tactical decisions or whatever but he rarely makes a mistake where it's like, oh, like he like he did he knowingly did the wrong thing or he like, you know, allowed his temper to get the better of him or or like things like that that make him like more difficult to sympathize with. Yeah, the, the stuff with, you know, like that flashback stuff really, I think, like pokes such a huge hole in the idea of like, I feel no emotions other than anger because it's like. He's like, I want to catch this kid who's doing graffiti, but then it's like, I see that it's this girl, and like, obviously, I'm not gonna hurt a like teen girl. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's like, therefore, I gave her a job, and like, I'm like her close confidant instantly. Mm-hmm. I think that and like I guess a big there's a part of it that's like we're two outcasts, but. Yeah, I think a big element of it for me was that, like, coming in knowing that it's, like, oh, it's, like, set in, like, the late 70s, early 80s, 
it's in that kind of like action mode of that era. I'm coming in expecting a bit more of like a dirty Harry or, you know, like one of one of the like sort of anti-heroes of that era. And he's not really an anti-hero. Like he's he's no. like kind of an anti-establishment guy, but he's like, kind of. well, yeah, he's kind of, he's anti-establishment in the first one. But then thereafter, it's like. And of course, I have an extremely cordial relationship with the FBI, and they kind of just get, tell me whatever I want to know and like get me out of legal trouble. <laughs> Which also, again, is like interesting decision to just like remove that as a point of conflict, which is something that I find like fairly interesting and compelling. Yeah, like he is a former FBI agent who was like drummed out, but then like his his relationship with the I guess it's just like I have this one friend who is beloved by the FBI. <laughs> Give me anything I want. Um, yeah, like, and it's like his whole. I think I feel like his anti like what's his anti heroness like? He never really messes with cops. Like he works for a politician. Mm-hmm. Like even though the depiction within the book is like we we come to understand like you know the politicians are skeevy like they have their own sort of self-interest at, at heart but in terms of the how the character behaves like he's never like i want to screw over this politician i hate politicians or anything like that mm-hmm. and then it's like there's one bad cop who we see yep and that's like the extent of it yeah and i guess like yeah he gets, does beat up that cop who like is well, overtly he, identified he as like racist that. and working yeah. for the villain he also beats up that cop when he like off duty while like breaking the law tries to kill him first (laughs) right um i do think like yeah it's it's interesting that you brought up lawless and like i remember at the time like we commented like he wrote in kind of the afterword of lawless like here ends like chapter one of the tracy lawless story and i was kind of like i wonder if a lot of these ideas get transferred forward to reckless and having now like read some of them i'm kind of like not really sure it does seem more like he he kind of like thought up a lot of this whole cloth but i am sort of like i wish these were lawless books like i wish i wish that it was instead like tracy lawless in these situations because he's a character who i find so much more interesting and having central city or whatever as like kind of uh like a a california city sort of stand-in also makes it kind of like there's no reason that we couldn't get stories about like Tracy's adventures in Southern California in the eighties and like essentially have the same stories, but with a character who I like more. (laughs) Yeah. And I was sort of thinking about that just now and I was like, Oh, well, if you make these lawless books, you maybe lose the Anna character who I do really like. And I was like, no, you don't have to lose the Anna character, but that relationship instantly becomes more interesting because it's like, you're lawless. (laughs) Like Mm -hmm. you like are not like a good guy. And so it's like, you have this like relatively innocent person who's working with you and who is like, maybe like the more like grounded and normal, like, part of society compared to you and like you know there are conflicts that arise from that where it's like it seems like with these two like other than like the interpersonal conflict that we see in uh destroy all monsters it's like yeah they do get along pretty well like they are kind of like kindred spirits in Mm -hmm. a way and it's like i guess i want more of like the idea where it's like 
they are kindred in one sense, but then like they are drastically different people, which yeah. is what you would get from the lawless version of right. this. And like positioning her a bit more so as kind of like a voice of reason and like right. conscience for him when he's like, all right, I've been wrong. So it's time for me to go kill like 15 people to have her to be like, even this person who maybe doesn't deserve it as much and have him be like, <laughs> yeah like more of a foil like like that yeah. yeah yeah and it's just like and i feel like they sort of pay lip service to that or like it thinks it's doing that but then in terms of what we actually see from the text of the book he's like always positioned as being in the right in like usually very concrete ways like fighting like the racist cop yeah i do think that like for again for a book that has ripped itself from the pages of history in and like put itself in an era where like counterculture is like very much like the thing and aligned that character with these sort of like, like identifying with these countercultural movements or anti-establishment kind of attitudes. We are missing a bit of that kind of like rough edge for him that yeah that i think that i think just makes him more interesting and enduring as a character where like yeah i'm i'm just like i would rather read about tracy lawless in these situations than ethan reckless because i just don't find ethan reckless to be that interesting of a character to read about when all is said and done yeah and there i just remember now reading this there was a moment where i was like oh this really reminds me of inherent vice Mm. and i like, have you seen that film or the book, I guess? Not recently. Um, but yeah, so like, it really reminds me of that where it's like, he's like the stoner PI, especially like in the first one where it's like his old girlfriend who has now sort of shacked up with the bad guy has sort of uh like entered the picture as well. And so that really reminded me of it. But then it's like that character is so not incompetent exactly, but like he... <laughs> He, like, is a stoner. He, like, is hard to, like, work with properly and, like, struggles to solve things properly because he is, like, such a stoner and so zenned out and so, like, not really a fighter. And that's, like, where the humor comes from is that, like, this guy is, like, you know, he can't, like, barge in and shoot everyone because he's not, like, the badass action hero. And so it's, like either do that which i would like or have him be more of a lawless where it's like this is the the ultra competent guy who then struggles with like human emotion and the the reason i also brought that up is because like the idea of like ethan is addicted to weed and pills is something that like gets paid lip service to but we never really see any kind of direct like effect mm-hmm. from well, it's the, I feel yeah. like there's a lot of stuff like that. Similar to the sort of like Ethan has this like fatalistic view of the world because he spent like some time after the bomb went off, basically like reading and uh, reading reading reports about how the world is doomed and we're like you know we live on like a terminal Earth basically. Um, but that again is something that like only occasionally comes up and it doesn't really feel like it influences his sort of like day to day life or like worldview yeah <laughs> should i mean i feel like we're heading towards the end here but should be summarized sure <laughs> uh, just just very briefly perhaps 
Yeah. So it's partly, they're like kind of two stories. One of them is uh, Ethan and Anna are fighting because Anna has gotten this new boyfriend who is all wrong for her. Um, and then Ethan takes this job from a city councilor who basically has discovered this situ. It's like a real estate developer has like bought this land and promised he will use it to like support black small business owners. But then it's he's making a Walmart instead. Yeah, basically. Um, so, and then Ethan is investigating this, but then the develop the city councilor like gets causes like a bust instead he like calls the vice squad in which sort of scuttles the idea of like the whole case like you know building a case against this guy and then like having him taken down in a federal way they then make this discovery that the develop like the developer flees the country the real estate developer um and then we also find out that he like has two identities (laughs) that he took on his identity of his partner Another another reveal where the pacing undercuts what could have been a great, like, discovery. <laughs> and also, like, a reveal that doesn't ultimately end up mattering that much, well, we I just, don't think. Yeah, like, we don't know any, we don't know that he had a partner, really, until it's like, he had a partner and stole his identity. <laughs> and then it's like, right. and he was able to use that stolen identity to, like, come back to the country to attack Ethan and Dana. Right. And I guess, like, it partly feeds into the idea that, like, he has sort of created this, like, image of himself as, like, this powerful man. Um, But at any rate. uh, And so he sets fire to the theater. um, And then Anna, like, comes back and saves him after they had their fight. um, Blows him away. (laughs) And then it concludes with, like, they rebuild the theater. And then he gives the theater to Anna. And then, and then we get like we get this little, little coda, which is, which is really good, um, where he, it's like, we see that it's old Ethan Reckless, like typing his stories out. And that's why we get all this narration. And then we get him like sort of reminiscing in like a standby me kind of way, uh-huh. including the idea that like, and she died young, like, and then we did, but like, Gone we're too not going to get the There's like yet. a photo of him and Anna standing in front of the El Ricardo and yeah. Yeah. This one which, is uh just like a classic i would rather have had the whole thing basically just be about like ethan and anna's relationship (laughs) there's almost like too much of the case in it which is not usually how i usually i'm like give me more of the that sweet sweet case um but i yeah i do think that those are the more kind of successful parts of this and even just like kind of thinking back on it does make me sort of feel like Maybe as we get through these final two volumes, I'll, I'll start to feel more positively as about it as kind of like a holistic, you know, um, big, big picture. Because, yeah, I, I was like, I at one point I was like, wait, am I reading the right book <laughs> for one of them? And then I was kind of like, I mean, other than the fact that there's specific ones that we're going to talk about, it doesn't seem like it really matters, which remains true. But I do wonder that, like, if as he continues to sort of, like, put these building blocks in place, if when we get to the end of five, I'll be like, okay, like, individually, a lot of these didn't do, like, a lot for me. But as, like, a collection, I like the world that was, like, put in place. Yeah. I I just feel like, like, I do like the world. I like the idea, like, there are a lot of cool, like, ideas and images, like, 
him living in the movie theater, I feel like that's a good example of like, that's just like a fun little thing that to have like this little home base that is like outside the norm and it's interesting. And like, I think that's fun, but then it's like, you're putting these like images I like and sort of like patina that I like in service of these stories and this characterization, which is, I often find quite unsatisfying. Mm -hmm. And then this is another example of what I also want to talk about, which is the way that this is like steeped in Ed Brubaker's life and his memory and like the, you know, the various societal things that were going on at the time that these books are taking place. But then it, never like delves into those as much as he wanted to mm-hmm. like it 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 feels like he like takes inspiration from these things but then never actually has an idea about you know how to execute on it or what he wants to say about any given thing right i think that part of that is because he has set these stories in la during a time when he didn't live there so his memory of them only extends like so far or his memory of like the place or the time or what have you where like for example in this one where like so much of it is focused on like the corridor and the effects of building like the 105 uh in los angeles he talks about how basically like i didn't even know that this was like a thing until i was like doing some research about like a neighborhood and it came up um like I was reading something about Linwood and then like they mentioned like the corridor and then I started digging into the corridor and like I can't believe more people don't know about this blah 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 um which I think sort of speaks to the like he's writing a story about like Angelinos and with this like very kind of affectionate nostalgic lens on like Los Angeles for all its warts from a specific era but he doesn't actually have memories of the city from that time. And it, like, he's not, he's not like a native Angelino. And so, yeah, I, I think that that might be kind of what you're detecting is that there's this like kind of desire to have it feel very like genuine and personal and lived in. But a lot of it is like born out of research. Um, and, and like, yeah, the, the experience ultimately is not of Los Angeles in terms of, like, from that time. Yeah, I guess so. But I feel like a lot of his inspiration is, like, my dad did this, or, like, my I had an uncle that was like this. Like, he talks about that a lot That's true. in Friend of the Devil, where he's like, yeah, my dad, like, my uncle was like running CIA operations in Vietnam, and that's probably where part of that came from, and, like, the idea of, like, sort of refugee immigrants, like Vietnamese immigrants during that time, um, you know, memories of sort of satanic panic over that time. Um, like, I, I think that all of it is very steeped in, like, memories and stuff he's interested in, but then it's like, I think he takes these things and then is like, that could be a good story, and never really considers what he wants to say about those things or just doesn't have any like takes about what he wants to say about those things he just thinks about like what was the thing at that time right and then it's like oh i could do a story about this rather than being like that was the thing at that time and it shows how this this and this 
And so I'm going to make a story about how this, this, and this does this. Like, it is literally just, like, a setting for him, which leaves it feeling a little bit hollow, I think. Right. Yep. Makes sense. (laughs) Um, Anything else? The art, I think, is okay. Yeah, it's it looks very different, I feel like, from some of the other stuff of his. Part of me was like, is this the coloring? Because we've got Jacob Phillips on the scene. I think not the first time we've seen him, but the first book that we've gotten to where he is on it full time. But I usually find the coloring to be kind of the strongest aspect. Um, the lines are very thick. They're very, um, like, sketchy, I guess I would almost say. Yeah, it's certainly, I, I almost feel like it's evoking Parker in some ways, where it is, like, trying to evoke the idea of, like, quick and dirty, a lot of shadow, and, like you said, like, really thick lines. Like, I feel like Ethan's, like, haircut yeah. is the chief, sort of. <laughs> he has such, like, a blocky haircut. Yeah, but even, like, like... I'm looking at like the panel in the first one where he's like kneeling over Wilder after like where he's in his death throes and the line of like the the outline of his shirt is like way, way thicker than I feel like I'm used to seeing Sean Phillips use noting that again, like line thickness is not something that I usually pay very close attention to, but it is something that like really stands out for me in all three kind of volumes of this book and there is just something that is a bit more kind of like rough and ready, I guess, about the art is how I would characterize it, which, again, I think I would like more if I felt like Ethan Reckless was a bit more of a like rough and ready character. Right. It's trying to evoke something. And I think that's just true of like basically the whole book is like it's trying to evoke something that it isn't really mm-hmm. like it's not really a pulp novel only in so like insofar as the structure and like the cases and stuff but the characterization and sort of what it is most concerned with like parker like we never get any characterization of parker really only insofar as like we don't get a character arc i guess is really what i'm saying is like he is the way he is and he's gonna stay that way and we have no reason to really want anything else like i don't want Parker to be like, I don't want a Parker comic to end with like, Parker got a dog? And it's like, I guess he is sort of letting people in a little bit. And it's like, no, he's yeah. Parker. Yeah. Um, whereas I feel like this is sort of trying to do that in some ways and it's like, is kind of betraying its own ethos in that way, where it's like, if you want to make this book, then make this book. Don't make like a comic with like emotional <laughs> nuance or like trying to have character arcs or things like that. Cause like, it's not going to end up feeling like a pulp book. It's going to end up feeling like a book with like pulp dressing on it. Yeah. I, I mean, does Ethan have like character arc in that way though? Like I feel like he is similarly yeah. sort of unchanging. It's just that, the thing that he is refusing to change or failing to change from is something that I just don't find all that interesting. Well, I think the moment of like, you know, the whole arc with him and Anna in destroy all monsters is like a character arc where he sort of goes from like, like he softens a little, he understands other people more. He allows himself to, I guess like 
be more sympathetic to other people more. You know, he gives her a theater. Sure. That's undeniable. That should count for something. Definitely. Yeah, I, yeah. I don't know. I think maybe it is just that they want him to be, like, too many different things. And also, um, that whole book is, like, she she's, like, the thing about you is you never want things to change. That's and true. then he's, like, and then I made a change. Just like Michael Jackson when he looked at the man in the mirror. Hmm. <laughs> it no was comment. It's going to feel real good, I've heard. <laughs> make a difference uh yeah <laughs> great a flawless seamless uh great way to grind yeah this to <laughs> yeah uh i i don't know i like i said i did find these like enjoyable as far as they went like what i was ne- i wasn't bored reading them i wasn't like frustrated with them while i read them i like had a good time and was diverted for like you know, an hour or so for each one. And yeah. And and then I just like, don't, like I said, kind of right at the top, I don't see myself ever having like a burning desire to come back to these. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's just, you know, how I feel about them. And for others, you know, they might have the Patton Oswalt experience and feel that this pushed all of their crime buttons. And like, I understand, I guess, if you are a person who like consumes a lot of this fiction, and just like, I want more of this, that it's like, oh, Ed Brubaker is making a crime book. And like, regardless of whether it's like the most amazing crime book you've ever read, it's awesome that he's doing that. And like, I'm getting more of this thing. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think we are maybe looking at it more from like a more holistic sense of like comics as a whole. I guess the people that love this are probably seeing like a gap in terms of like, I'm not getting enough of this. Like, people aren't making that much of this. Mm -hmm. Whereas we're looking at it as like, well, I could be reading this or I could be reading a different comic. It's not like, it's not like I need this specifically. And so then like that sort of, we're stacking it up against, and it's also like we talked a little bit Parker, like we're stacking it up against the best comics (laughs) that there are. (laughs) and so there is like and you know criminal as well Well, yeah i was gonna say like i feel even just within their oeuvre like if this was under the criminal brand i would consider these stories to be like lower tier criminal stories like right like i'd 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 rate most of the criminal stories above any of these stories um which again is like that's not to say that they're bad but it's just like in comparison to other work that we've seen them do in this genre with this kind of character they've set a very high bar for themselves and i think that this like this just doesn't clear it or at least it doesn't clear it by as much as the other kind of standout works that they have already done in the world of crime comics yeah exactly um you have any sales info? Uh, no, I was digging around and couldn't really find anything. Um, I did read an interview where he said that, um, like pre-orders for their previous look, like for my heroes have always been junkies and pulp, I think is the other one that came out first as a, like, yep. as a little hardback. Um, he said that like the orders for those were similar to what they would see for like a first issue and that Reckless was outselling both of those, at least for the first volume. So I imagine that it did like pretty well, but for whatever reason, uh, I wasn't able to find 
the information like on Comicron where it was specific numbers. Again, like especially the first couple volumes, like 2020 and 2021, the sales information is like kind of scattershot. Um, and like it also kind of gets a little funky around this time because um, Diamond Distributions, like Monopoly on <laughs> the distribution system for comics got like broken up. So not that that affects image, but it does mean that like just the the like sales numbers start to get like a little kind of funky around this time because all of a sudden it's needing to get collated from like a bunch of different sources. Anyways, all that to say, no. Right. Awards. Uh, he is nominated in this year, I know, for yes. Best Writer. So for... In 2021, he gets nominated for Pulp, Reckless, and Friday. What's Friday? Friday is uh, a book that we will talk about in the future sometime, hopefully. But um, with Marcos Martin on, um, I'm forgetting the name of the platform. The same thing that The Private Eye came out on. Right. Uh, This is bad, and I should know it. Comic World. No, that's not what it is. Um, Syndicate? Is that something? Yes. Or is that just panel, a, syndicate. panel syndicate? Panel syndicate is what it's called. I was like, is the syndicate something in the private <laughs> eye, or is that the publisher? Panel syndicate is the name of the publisher. Please leave all that stammering in as I tried to think of the name. <laughs> um, anyways, yeah, same same idea. Like digital first, pay what you want, um, delivery model, and that one is uh, like still ongoing i think to the best of my knowledge um and it's a take a post ya is how he characterizes it and so it's basically like imagine if um like encyclopedia brown was all grown up and kind of like found himself entangled in a like a mystery right. that's uh, a little bit beyond his pay grade for the kind of things that he has tackled before except it's not um the main character is friday fitzhugh who is kind of like the sidekick to the encyclopedia brown type uh and she's like gone off to college while he stayed in their hometown and has continued to like be like a boy detective into kind of like their later teens and early 20s and so then she comes back to town and she's kind of like this isn't like real life what you're doing is a joke and he's like no you don't get it like something is like actually happening um so anyways i've only read the first issue of that one which was good uh and I think if we get a little bit more of that, we will uh, probably cover it. Cheers. Um, Pulp, just because we're not covering it. Haven't Pulp read does it. win <laughs> Best Uh-oh, Graphic please. Album New. Um, just wanted to mention that. And then, like, you know, stuff like Criminals getting, like, a reprint nomination. Uh, and then in 2022 as well, he gets a Best Writer nomination that's just for Destroy All Monsters and Friend of the Devil. Uh, and Destroy All Monsters gets a nomination for Best Graphic Album New. And both years he loses to someone I've never heard of, actually, James Tinian the Fourth. Oh, yeah. He's like a DC guy. I assume um, is. Yeah. I saw that he wrote Batman. Like, that's part of... Yeah, he's what he was. He's like kind of the, or maybe still is. Um, I think he's a Substack guy now, which means, of course, that I've completely lost track of all of his projects. But he, so he started at DC as kind of like a Scott Snyder disciple. So he's kind of like the next right. generation after him, and like co-wrote some Batman stuff with him for a while, and then 
got onto some of his own projects at DC that were kind of like started like getting picking up some steam and getting him some recognition that gave him enough clout to do a couple of creator owned series. So the two main ones that I think of for him are called The Nice House on the Lake and Something is Killing the Children, which were these two like independent horror books that then became like giant hits and got him into the echelon where you get a Substack deal. Right. I did the woe was I clicked on his bibliography and it's just like oh that's a lot of batman comics yeah but then it's also it's a lot of one shots because batman like i don't really know what's been going on with batman but like it seems crazy so his like his like on-ramp into like comics writing basically was to co-write like batman eternal with scott snyder which was also like a weekly series so that's that will pump up the credits count for sure (laughs) um but I'm seeing I'm seeing that Batman Eternal, the series featured Batman, his allies, and Gotham City. Yes, that's correct. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's it is just like these all have crazy titles, and like they're all one shots. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, he wrote Batman: The Joker War Zone, and Batman: Fear State Omega. <laughs> yeah, those are two things that he definitely did write. Oh, he wrote The Batman Who Laughs the Grim Hunt. Uh, yeah. <laughs> he did write that as well. I'm interested. I've never read his creator-owned stuff because most of his like superhero stuff leaves me pretty cold. I do like his detective comics run. Um, but other than that, most of like the corporate stuff I read from him did pretty much nothing for me. But people love his like his image books. So I have been meaning to look at them for a long time. Um, especially because like they came out after he got onto detective comics, which I was like, it feels like he's kind of like getting his stride here a bit. So I wouldn't be surprised if those hit uh, a bit better than, you know, the stuff where he's learning how to write comics. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, I haven't read a ton of his work, but I did love dark Knight's death metal, the multiverse who laughs number one, <laughs> you know, about the Batman who laughs, right? I have a vague understanding of the Batman who laughs, which is just like, he's Batman, but he's the Joker. Yeah, he has all his Robins. Right. They're like Jokerized and he has them on a leash. Um, That's good. Yeah. I'm I'm shocked that it took them that long to be what if Batman was the Joker? <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, it seems like the world was because it was a giant smash hit and then DC was like, what if we made a million books about the Batman who laughs yeah. and did a mini series where they go to the Batman who laughs universe and find out who else might be laughing. Um, and it was all hey, part I of this remember... like somewhat demented plot that Scott Snyder was doing that had something to do with like a dark universe metal that I have not yes, read. The dark <laughs> The Dark Multiverse is something I've just learned about. And yes, I And that was the one where Tom Cruise was gonna be the money? The mummy? <laughs> Excuse me. I mean, I think you're absolutely got it right. Um, but yes, I feel like at the time I heard a lot about Dark Knight's Metal, which is just like one of God's worst <laughs> comic book titles. Yeah, the, the conceit of that was like, imagine if all these like evil versions of Batman and also it was like, imagine if this other character was Batman and evil. So there's like an evil Batman who's also the Flash and an evil Batman who's oh also gosh. Green Lantern 
and an evil Batman who's also the Joker. And like, yeah, a lot of stuff like that where it's like, maybe maybe corporate comics really are in <laughs> the end game. <laughs> uh, perhaps for sure. Um, it, it was talking, I was reading about the EP that was released alongside oh, okay. Dark Knight's Metal. Um, and there's a track from Alexis Krauss, who is the singer in Sleigh Bells. Uh-huh. But I thought it said Alison Krauss. <laughs> that would be like, quite oh? something. At any rate, we're well and truly off track at this point. So we should uh, wrap up here. Thank you all for listening. Uh, please remember, rate, review, five stars, two stars, whatever you, however the spirit moves you. Um, probably five. <laughs> but, you, you know, know we'll see. Five is, five is what we prefer, two may be what we deserve. So, you know, f- listen to your conscience and do what you think is right. Precisely. Um, got the runs pod at gmail.com. Got the runs pod on Twitter. Uh, not even next week, right? Later this week, we have still haven't decided when these. I are think going I think but... I'm going to do uh, target a double drop. So both of the, you, you could potentially go on and listen right this moment to uh, our next reckless episode. If I have there my you go. way, great. Then so right now there is another episode that we have not recorded yet. Uh, but I can tell you right now, two... it's one of our best. <laughs> sure, uh, I mean. <laughs> This one turned out better than I feared. So. <laughs> uh, so look out for that. Reckless the Ghost in You and Reckless Follow Me Down. We will be covering those. We will be talking about the conclusion of our Ed Brubaker miniseries. We will look back at the year that was. Uh, I've prepared a year in review quiz show for oh, you. Boy. That's a lie. <laughs> um, Thank goodness. <laughs> So look forward to that, and we'll have our Ed Brubaker rankings as well. Uh, so until right now, wait, what's what's the? Isn't there a thing where it's a TV show or something where it's like it was a two part episode or something, and the end is like to be continued immediately. <laughs> sure. Um. So in the spirit of that. To, to be, be continued, continued immediately. <laughs> Flawless as always. Um, there's a joke about that in the Simpsons movie, it looks like. But I was thinking of something else. 